John chapter 8. John chapter 8. I'm interested in the first 11 verses of this chapter. I'll try to preach on the unexpected story of grace with an adulterous woman. Last year, I forget what night it was, but I tried to preach on the unexpected story of grace with a religious man. John chapter number 3. There is much in John's gospel that is unexpected. John chapter number 2, it was, I imagine we would consider it greatly unexpected that The first of Christ's miracles was not raising someone from the dead or some, what we would consider to be some dramatically great thing, but he turned the water into wine to spare the newlywed couple unnecessary embarrassment. Strange way to start a miraculous ministry, unexpected. Of course, in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus comes, it's strange. A religious leader that actually wants to have a conversation, a genuine, legitimate conversation with Christ about everlasting life. It's unexpected. John chapter number 4, he goes into Samaria. That's unexpected. Sits down and talks with a Samaritan woman. That was unexpected. Further down, of course, in John chapter number 9, He heals a man who was born blind. That was unexpected. In fact, the blind man makes the statement, John chapter 9. He said, since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of a man that was born blind? It's unexpected. John chapter 11 is kind of unexpected. He hears news that one of his great friends is sick unto death, and yet he doesn't move one bit. Stays right where he is. And four days after he's dead, he raises him from the dead. That was unexpected. John 13, he washes the disciples' feet. That's quite unexpected, isn't it? You'd think it should be the other way around. Quite unexpected. John 21, after Simon Peter has denied him thrice, you'll remember, He is employing Simon Peter once again to feed his sheep, to feed his lambs. That's quite unexpected, isn't it? John writes about a lot of things that are unexpected. Here in John chapter number 8, it's an unexpected story of grace with an adulterous woman. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came unto him and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. We often look at that phrase as as they seem to understand it anyway. But you realize there was one without sin that was among them. 
It might as easily be understood as saying, let me first deal with her. Right, let him that is without sin among you first cast a stone. Let her stand up to my judgment before she stands up to yours. He did cast a stone at her, except for it was the rock of ages, wasn't it? Upon which she may cast herself and find grace in his sight. Notice verse number 8, and again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Oh, my. Oh my, go and sin no more. It has been observed through the years that by a great number of commentators that the early church was inclined to suppress this account lest it somehow should lead people into sin. In their mind, it appeared that Christ's leniency with this adulterous woman might give the impression at least that the sin of adultery is not as great of a crime as is often asserted. But truth be said, grace is always subject to abuse, isn't it? By those who are unlearned and unstable. Always there are some who seem to tend toward turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. Using the grace that is in Christ as an excuse to live a lawless life. In this text, you, you really find two interwoven stories, if I might use that term. You find Christ's dealings with the guilty who didn't know that they were guilty. The scribes and Pharisees. And then Christ's dealings with this woman who knew that she was guilty. Both of them seem to run side by side and both of them are full of great lessons anyway when you come to this text. My interest tonight is to focus upon this adulterous woman. It is what F.B. Meyer called the penitence gospel. It is a message of grace from Christ himself. One of the great peculiarities of the scriptures above all other writings is that when the Penman, the inspired penman, wrote in the scriptures, largely they wrote around people. It wasn't uh, merely a, a list of rules and regulations that people were to abide by, although you do find some of that, yet largely the, the Bible was a book that was written around people, people of various sorts, some worse than others, perhaps some that were not so bad in our eyes at least. I think part of the reason why that is the case is because it is so much easier for us to identify with someone when we feel like we have at least some aspect of shared experience with them. It's not so much about God giving rules as much as it is about God demonstrating in the scriptures how he deals with fallen humanity. 
with those we may identify, with those we often find ourselves, whether by personality or whatever it might be, or situation or whatever it is, we find ourselves in them, don't we? We recognize and realize the truthfulness of the biblical account. It was divine, divinely designed, no doubt, that way that we that our experience and their experience might overflow into one another and we might see ourselves in the pages and personages of the Holy Scriptures. This is especially true when the shadows of gospel truth are seen in the biblical text. Arthur Pink wrote this about this text. He said this blessed incident. He said outlines by vivid symbols the gospel of the grace of God. Now while we may not in every text, be able to honestly read the entire gospel into the text. Yet at the same time, we may easily discern some aspects of the gospel of Christ in this text. We may note, of course, in this text, that of mercy and compassion being shown to one who is utterly undeserving. We may note in this text that life is given to one who has merited death. We may see in this text that grace supersedes the law's just condemnation. We may see also in this text the bringing of an end to sin's dominion in someone's life. And the establishing in the way of, or in the path of righteousness, go and sin no more. In this text, we, it's almost a greater, a larger illustration of what John wrote in John chapter 1 verse 17. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The three things I want you to see tonight in this text very briefly. First of all, I want you to notice the undeniable guilt of sin that confronted her. Let me say this first and foremost. She was guilty long before they ever brought her to this point. She was guilty long before they ever publicly exposed what she had done. Exposure is not the thing that makes someone guilty. Somehow in our generation we do. People have embraced the Las Vegas motto, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. No, what happens in Vegas meets you at the judgment of Jesus Christ. But oftentimes people think as long as they are not exposed and as long as they are not openly and publicly humiliated in some way that therefore their sins are not near as bad and they are not near as guilty as they would be otherwise. It's not our exposure that makes us guilty in the sight of God. It is the act itself, isn't it? And so she was guilty long before they bring her before Christ and ask Him concerning her guilt and her just judgment, whether our sin is known or whether our sin is unknown, is of no consequence as far as our guilt is concerned. And so they, they knew it and she knew it, didn't they? This woman was taken in adultery in the very act. At this stage in this woman's life, this was something that was forced upon her consciousness. Whether she wanted to own up to any of it before this point in time, she could not avoid it at this stage. She is standing before the Lord, or really cast down at the feet of the Lord of glory. And so, before she may have made light of it, before perhaps she did not think it was such a big deal, but now she knows it's a big deal. 
This is something that has brought her into the place of condemnation. No more can she say it's just a light matter. Oftentimes little do sinners even begin to weigh properly the magnitude of their guiltiness in the sight of God. Very rarely do you find someone who is under such a heaviness of the weight and the burden of their sin and guiltiness in the sight of God until they are placed in the realm of judgment. And then suddenly they begin to see some measure at least of what of the enormity of the weight of their sin and guilt in the sight of God. You'll notice here that she was caught in a humiliating act. Verse 3 and 4. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now whatever else may have been the motives behind what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing, the facts were clear as concerns her. She was taken in the very act, the guilt of sin was sure. Now in the life of this woman, there he is, this is no mere hearsay evidence. They're not coming to him saying, you know, we heard something was going on anyway, maybe perhaps it was. No, this was absolutely certain. She was dragged out now for all the world to see. She was caught in a humiliating act. You wonder oftentimes how ashamed must she have felt. Was she feeling the disgrace, the embarrassment? Was she contrite? Was she broken when she was brought out there in that atmosphere? People, of course, feel quite differently about their sins when they realize that they were done for all the world to see. They feel quite differently about their sins and they will feel quite differently about their sins when they stand before the Lord of glory. Christ was bringing light into the world. And yet while Christ was, in, was busy about bringing light into the world, here was this woman who seemed to prefer the realms of darkness and indulgence of her own selfish and sinful pleasures. She was caught in a humiliating act. She was condemned by a holy law. They magnify this to her. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. She was brought to the judgment seat of the law. She must realize that it it isn't simply the standards of the world, the standards of society that she has failed. It is not that she has just not measured up to what society now expects of her, but she is confronted with the fact of the law itself. The holy law of God. Moses in the law commanded us, they said. That holy law given by God himself that said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. She essentially forbids all sexual relationships outside of the bonds of marriage, including the indulgence of even sexual desires according to Christ in Matthew chapter 5 verse 28. If you, if you look on a woman to lust after her, you have committed adultery with her already in your heart. It wasn't just man that she had wronged. It wasn't just herself that she had wronged or whoever the man was in this occasion, but it was God himself, wasn't it? She had offended. His holy law was stamped under her feet. He's thinking of Joseph who 
When tempted by Potiphar's wife made that well clear to her. How can I do this great act? He said, and sin against God. He said, it's not a matter of just you. She is exposed by the law. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So she is caught in a humiliating act. Condemned by holy law. Confronted with horrifying justice. Moses in the law commanded that such should be stoned. Her condemnation, in fact, was entirely just. Entirely just. You say you're one of those who think that the death penalty should still exist. Well, yeah, according to the Bible. Such which do such things are worthy of death, right? Worthy of death. She is exposed to the law's perfect righteousness. She is exposed to the law's prescribed requirements. Justice demanded her death. That was the simple fact. She had exposed herself to the wrath of Almighty God. The broken law demands the just just action of the death of the offender. The satisfaction of the law is demanded. To this she could answer nothing. She had no plea. She said not a word. She has no hope beyond, she has no, so, no hope of being saved by the law, does she? Oh no. Ah, the law does nothing but demand her, de- uh, render the verdict and demand her death. What, what hope could she have when the law has rendered its verdict already given in her sight? Could she say, well, I'll do better? But the law has already spoken, hasn't it? The law has already been broken and has spoken the verdict. Doing better is not going to change that fact. She couldn't say, well, I'll tell you, I'll try. I'll try harder and I'll live better. Oh, no. The law has been broken. The verdict has been rendered. And she is standing now before the penalty that the law demands. She's going to have something, have to have something better than mere human resolve, isn't she? Then you'll notice she is cast before a heavenly judge. In verse 5, they ask Christ, but what sayest thou? Notice this, she found herself in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. Her knowing that he had every right and would have been right had he said, go ahead and do what the law requires. He would have been right to do so. But she is left up to his judgment. So you find the undeniable guilt of sin that confronted her. Secondly, you see the unspeakable grace of salvation that comforted her. Verse 6 down through verse number 11, Christ begins to speak about this matter. Her without a word here to, to attempt to clear herself or to lessen or to mitigate the charges that have been brought against her. And Christ begins to deal with her in great compassion. It's worthy of notice, you'll know, that when you read the scripture of how Christ dealt with different kinds of people. Christ encountered those in a way who came to him in brokenness and feeling a sense of need for mercy. He always dealt with them in such immediate compassion and kind tenderness. But... If any came to him self-righteously over them proper motives, he could quite quickly reduce them to their right size. Such was the case here. There's one thought I, I, you, you can see with me here in this passage of Scripture. 
at least. I, notice the flow of the text. They, they, they asked in verse 5, Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But listen to this. But what sayest thou? This thought has thrilled me in days and I like to live in the light of it. Because whether they realized it or not, whether these scribes and Pharisees realized what they were saying or what they were suggesting, anyway, they were at least giving the impression that here was one, even if the law had already spoken, here was one who can speak after the law has spoken. The law has given its word, its verdict, and yet here was one who's yet to speak after the law has already spoken. He yet has a word to say. The law may speak in guilt, but he may yet speak in grace. The law may speak its condemnation, but he may yet speak in compassion. The law has rendered its verdict, but Christ may yet render render justification in his sight. Moses commanded, but what sayest thou, they said. Do you have a word that goes beyond what the law has said? Yes, he does, thank God. And so they, gave, they at least gave place to the fact that here is one who can speak beyond the law. After the law has given its final word, its final verdict, there, there may yet be a voice that is yet to speak, you see. A voice of grace, a voice of compassion. Now we could sit in judgment upon this woman, I suppose, or we could realize that I've been where she has been. I've stood before the law of God and heard its condemning, thundering voice. I've seen the lightnings of the glare of God's glory in the law. I've been there. I've been where she has been. But thank God there is one who can speak after the law has spoken. The unspeakable grace of salvation that comforted her. Can you imagine, brother, in her situation? You know, I mean, I, I came to the law first. Spent time on Mount Sinai. God planted me there that I might know what I am. And there you see the flashing of God's holiness in, 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 in clear view. It thundered out its voice, this one must die, but I don't want to die, right? I want to live. Is there yet one who can speak after the law is spoken? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. He speaks with a priceless tenderness to her in verse number 10. Woman, he said. Notice he addresses her, this adulterous woman, with the very same tenderness with which he had addressed his mother in John chapter number 2. Woman, where are thine accusers? Woman, he said. And so he dismisses the mob from before her, not subjecting her to their accusative eyes. After all, it's not them she has to please. It's him, isn't it? It's him. F.B. Meyer noted, he said, he wants those ruthless accusers to drop away and the soul to have time to realize it's sin in his holy presence. He speaks with a priceless tenderness. He speaks with a powerful truth. He tells her, he asks her the question, he said, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, no man, Lord. And he noticed, he said, neither do I condemn thee. Like the religious leaders, she had now 
discovered the truth of his purpose coming into the world. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You see, he didn't come to judiciously inflict the, the, the punishment of sin upon the sinner, but to, but to personally bear that sin upon himself. That's why he came, wasn't it? That's why he came. She probably didn't understand it, as many others didn't in that hour, how he could just freely all forgive. How could he do that? How could he make the statement, neither do I condemn thee? It is because he would go on to bear what she herself has deserved. He speaks a powerful truth. He speaks a personal or speaks with a personal touch. Neither do I condemn thee, he says. It is you personally. And so while many others had left with condemnation and judgment hanging over them, there is one who's leaving with a voice of acquittal, the voice of justification. She leaves with a joy of forgiveness. So not only do we see the undeniable guilt of sin that confronted her, the unspeakable grace of salvation that comforted her, but notice the unshakable grounds of security that changed her. The words of Jesus Christ to her are precious. Her past could not be changed. She couldn't change what has been done. Christ clearly implies as he deals with her that that, that, that he doesn't countenance what has been done, but it's obvious it cannot be changed. He clearly implies that she had both sinned, that she was indeed guilty, that she in fact deserved what the law really demanded, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Neither do I condemn thee, he says. And on the basis of that undeserved mercy, Christ Christ is concerned really about that, that her experience be lasting. Notice in verse 11, no man, Lord, and Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. He gives three things we might say here that really changed her life. One, there's the establishing of relationship. He says, woman, hath no man condemned thee? She said, no man, Lord. Of course, the word Lord means owner, possessor. Something has been done in her heart that has brought her into relationship with this one. He is not just one that the Pharisees and scribes despised or tried to trick. He is Lord of all. He is Lord. And so before she knew, before this point in time, she knew him not. But now she knows him and knows him as Lord. And so there's the establishing of relationship. There's the effecting of release. Christ said, neither do I condemn thee. Freedom. There is therefore now no condemnation of them which are in Christ Jesus. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Freedom. Not just freedom from the accusative eyes, if you will, of scribe and Pharisee, but freedom from the condemnation of the holy law of God. Freedom from the death that she so richly deserved. Freedom into newness of life. Now that's liberty without license, isn't it? Freedom. 
Then you'll notice this changed her, the ensuing after righteousness. Go, he said, and sin no more. She walks away uncondemned, but she walks away in a different path, doesn't she? Not in order to make yourself not condemned, but because you're already not condemned. Right? J.C. Ryle said, were, were he a favorer of sin, he would say, neither do I condemn thee. Go, live as thou wilt. The problem is, is that's the gospel, so to speak, that a lot of people are hearing this hour. But it's not biblical. Go and sin no more. Let me tell you something tonight. The establishing of the people of Christ in the path of righteousness is just as much a work of grace as her forgiveness of her sin and guilt in the sight of God's holy law. Go and sin no more, he says. He calls for the breaking off of all sin. As John the Baptist earlier had put it, bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance, constrained by the love and grace of Christ. Let me apply it in a few ways and I'll be Finish. You, we, we may use this truth tonight for humility. Are we any better than she? No, we're not. Merely because our depravity perhaps may not have found that particular expression. Huh? You say, well, I never did what she did. No, but you've done some things she probably didn't do too. Huh? You say, well, I don't do what so-and-so does, but, but, but under heaven, what do you do? Huh? Use it for humility. Oh, my conscience will tell us a different story, won't it? It did with the scribes and Pharisees. We too have shaken our fists in the face of God and walked in wanton rebellion against God. Use it for humility. Use this truth for salvation. When we find ourselves exposed, exposed and condemned by the law, there is one who can speak after the law has spoken. Use it for salvation. Use it for worship. What a glorious wonder this is. Christ receiveth sinful men, even me with all my sin. What a wonder. Worship is little more than a thankful realization of the wonder of God and His, His mercies upon us. Use it for worship. Use it for righteousness. Not righteousness, not born out of a fear of the Lord's justice merely, but born out of a gratefulness for our Lord's enduring mercy upon us. Use it for evangelism. For this is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Our pastor's coming tonight.